My name is Jay Lasseter, and I am perhaps the most notorious ex-drug addict in all of New Jersey. It's the addict has to own it and want it for themselves. It'll be difficult, no matter who gets elected governor, to continue these programs without finding a permanent way to pay for it. The Truth About the Crisis, brought to you by NJ1015.com and made possible by Carrier Clinic. Unless you've been living under a rock for the last few years, you've already heard of New Jersey's opiate crisis. It's on the front page of today's paper, it's all over TV and the radio, and in this case, a podcast. In other words, there's a lot of media focused on New Jersey's insatiable appetite for opiates like heroin and Oxycontin. I had a chance to speak with my colleague, Mike Simons, who covers the State House for NJ1015. Governor Christie has made opioids a major issue throughout the summer and into the fall. So the the way that it sort of has become an issue around Trenton is how you're going to find the money for the things that Governor Christie says he wants to do. But he had said a thing recently at a news conference that he had that the, with the additional money that the state is putting in this year, that New Jersey will have almost as much money being spent in its budget as the entire federal government on opioid-related issues. It's an interesting thing to basically hand to the next governor because it could be a really good program with a lot of really effective things or it also could be an area where it would be ripe to cut some of that money back yeah this is a really big priority but there are also other competing interests but it's also really hard to make any cuts here given that it's a calamity and 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 what's going on with the opioid crisis it'll be difficult no matter who gets elected governor to continue these programs without finding a permanent way to pay for it. They're paying for it this year with essentially temporary money that's being transferred in. So you would need to maintain that $200 million at the same time that there's going to be people saying, well, you need more money for preschool, you need more money for a bunch of other things. So probably November, December, and into January, the last two months before Governor Christie leaves office, you'll see a lot of activity around a lot of issues, and opioids could be one of them. I asked Mike to keep an eye on the gubernatorial debates that are happening in New Jersey right now in advance of our election, which is coming up, and I wanted to see just how much of a focus was on New Jersey. Jersey's opiate crisis. So yeah, at this point, we've had two out of three debates and opioids hasn't come up much as a topic. If it's been mentioned at all, it's only been in passing. And given how much interest there is in the general public concern at the state and national levels and how much Governor Christie talks about it, it's kind of surprising in a way. For folks like me who were hoping to have a debate or at least a discussion about opiates and heroin uh, during this campaign, The third debate was actually equally disappointing. It didn't come up at all, which to me is quite egregious, given it's probably one of the most important topics going on in New Jersey politics and in general right now. So for them to neglect that on the campaign trail, somebody's going to be a new governor soon, and we don't really know what their plan is, and and that's too bad. A personal goal of this podcast was to go beyond reporting statistics and merely conveying how grave the situation has become. Today we're going to meet some local homegrown Jersey journalists who have covered the opiate crisis pretty extensively. Their willingness to ask the tough questions inspires me. So who better to ask how to fix this than a few Jersey boys who have covered this very extensively and in a deeply personal way. I'm Steve Sterling. I'm a data reporter for NJ Advanced Media, so I write for The Star Ledger and NJ.com. Your series entitled Heroin Town, which appeared in The Star Ledger, among others, uh, was really, in my opinion, sort of the high watermark for 
reporting on this issue. So I wanted to track you down to say awesome job, but also to find out because it was a big deal and it got a lot of attention. The newspapers promote it really, really heavily. And I'm just wondering what has changed since uh, that series? Coming up on two years since we put that out, uh, certainly a lot of legislation has been passed. A lot of money has been put towards the opioid crisis and a lot of conversation is, I mean, the level of conversation is certainly heightened. Uh, as people become more aware of it. And, you know, none of that is a bad thing. When you wrote Heroin Town, which came out a couple of years ago, you were uniquely situated to write this. And, and you were just out of rehab, if I'm not mistaken. I guess it was a little while after I'd come out of rehab. But, um, you know, I had been in sobriety for not very long at all. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, I mean, it was certainly, you know, I had I had personal experience with, with addiction, if not heroin. Uh, and, you know, it was part of my life every day. You can't be, you know, somebody in recovery in New Jersey and not, you know, see this firsthand. I've been, you know, I'm coming up on three years in sobriety myself. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it, my life is totally different than it was three years ago. I mean, you know, you know, I have a kid now. I have, uh, you know, I mean, I still have my wife, which is remarkable because considering what I put her through uh, when I was still out there. Um, you know, we have a house together. You know, I'm able to do things in my career now that, you know, weren't even conceivable before because, you know, I couldn't, you know, I, I was struggling to get through day to day uh, at work. You know, I don't have the ability to write about things like the opioid crisis without my sobriety. I don't, you know, and, uh, you know, I'm just grateful to, be able to have any impact that I can on that. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's important to me to, you know, as part of, you know, service that I can do to the community to give back, you know, that's part of the job anyway. So, but, you know, you know, for me personally, you know, addiction is, is something that, you know, I want to get out there. I want to talk about, I want people to, to be aware of. I do know that me doing a podcast about heroin has definitely had an impact on me. So I'm wondering, because your series was huge. You know, Heroin Town is a really big deal. It was a lot of reporting. It was a lot of data. Um, how has how your, I mean, how did that impact you personally? I think more than anything for me personally, it sort of kept it green for me. You know, and that, that's been super important in my sobriety. And it's been helpful for me personally because, you know, it keeps this in my face. It keeps me reminded of what, you know, my life could be. If I go back out there, because I could tomorrow, anything could happen and I could, you know, I could, you know, fall down, uh, you know, a bad path again. So, you know, keeping that in the forefront of my mind and keeping that firm understanding for me of what uh, what can happen if, you know, if I lose my sobriety is is hugely important to me. We then focused on lessons learned from covering this beat, but also wisdom derived from our own personal rehab experiences. So we both went to inpatient rehab once. Um, is there anything that you kind of wish you would have known or wish you would have asked beforehand? I think, I think the, the thing that it's sort of jarring, it's probably going to be for, for, for anybody, is like, you know, having a plan when you get out. Uh, because, you know, it, you know, being in a place for 28 days or three months or six months, you know, it's, you know, there, there's a certain comfort level there. You may not, may not like being there, but you are generally speaking away from your substance of choice. You are generally speaking, you know, in this sort of protective bubble, whether or not you like it. Uh, but it's, it can be a rude awakening, yeah. uh, you know, the moment you step out back out into your, your life because all of the wreckage you caused is still there. 
uh, still needs to be cleaned up and, you know, you still are the person that you are and you're going back into a situation where you were, you know, using whatever uh, you were and all of your temptations are back and all of that. And so, you know, I think having a sort of plan to continue your recovery immediately after you step out of those doors is is pretty important and i see a lot of people sort of stumble and falter because they don't having a plan for after rehab that's almost just as important as rehab itself you know when i get a note from somebody that says hey this thing that you wrote really helped me i mean just the fact that you know i've even gotten one of those notes and i've gotten several that would totally make it worth it for me you know that's that's the public service aspect of this and you know that's a you know, a big part of my life now is, you know, being able to, to help others and uh, because of what I have and what I've been able to get. So, um, you know, being immersed in this in this sense is, is really good for me, I think. I, I think we're both really lucky, too, because, you know, in 12-step programs, they talk about, you know, you've got to give back. You've got to serve. You've got to... You've got to like turn that, you know, the longevity that you've been given into, you know, lifting somebody else up. I know when I get those notes from somebody who I've helped, it makes my day. And when I get a note from a mother who just buried her son, you know, that makes me pretty sure that uh, I'm not going to use today, too. This is really, 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 really important. I can scarcely emphasize how much that service bit matters. It's probably one of the most important things that I learned in 12-step meetings is you got to give back. You've got to take the longevity that you've been given to raise somebody else up. We then shifted to America's rigid notion of what recovery looks like. And the truth is, recovery can take many forms, ranging from total abstinence all the way to healthy moderation. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I think that's that that can be one of the tricky things. I mean, I think I think addiction in general is difficult to explain or get somebody to wrap their heads around uh, who doesn't have it in their life, who doesn't know what that sort of pull is. And it takes a lot of different forms. And, you know, I've seen I've seen plenty of people that are able to, you know, that have alcohol problems and are able to abstain from that and they can smoke pot. Uh, you know, there are people, you know, like me. I just I know how I use drugs. I know how uh, I know how I drink. And it, it doesn't it doesn't matter. I haven't come across a substance uh, that I won't abuse you know it's there's no there's no moderation for me it's just not the way that i'm wired so i think you know recovery can take a lot of forms and i think that's uh you know that's part of the tricky thing about this is because getting to that recovery is a different path for everybody and what that looks like at the end of the day is different from everybody you know i think particularly for people like policymakers and stuff like that who are who are you know have the power to effectuate change on this that's that's sort of a difficult thing to 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 wrap your head around if you don't have this in your life can i even see that in some of the the coverage that i see i mean there are people that advocate for different things there are people that advocate for mat really heavily uh, you know as as you know well they should because it's not being embraced uh, you know, there are people that, you know, it doesn't really matter what, you know, the, you know, people that advocate for 12-step programs, inpatient treatment, you know, intensive outpatient treatment, whatever it may be. It's, you know, it's great to see people advocating for any number of things, but, you know, I see a lot of people putting down another thing to elevate their, you know, their cause. And it's, it's kind of like, uh, you know, I don't know how productive that is at the end of the day is like, you know, I think we, you know, I, I think that we, it's shown that we should try a lot of things because, you know, very different things work for very different people. And if you talk to, you know, if you get a group of 10 people in recovery together, 
uh, and you talk to them about how they got to sobriety and how they found, you know, a manageable life, uh, you're going to get 10 different stories. At this point, we discussed the empathy gap. And that's frankly why sometimes I think maybe our prospects to turn the corner are not so great. Have you read the comment section about what people say about people like you and me in your own newspaper? Of course. And sometimes I get in there and I get I get kind of feisty and, and you know, stuff like that. But that's, you know, that's an important part of my job is to to be in there and, you know, have an understanding of people that, you know, from all sides of this. And yeah, you know, I think that there is sort of, you know, an empathy gap and there is, uh, you know, there is there is a stigma about drug users, about uh, about anybody that suffers from addiction of any kind is like, you know, that that sense of why don't you just stop or, you know, you know it it doesn't it, you know, it just doesn't translate to, to people and they they it's still out there to a, a very large degree. You know, I just, you know, when I talked to Governor Christie a couple of weeks ago, he he feels the same way in that he's shocked. It's like anytime he puts something on Facebook, 40% of the comments are, you know, are this kind of, this kind of tone is like, well, you know, they're, they're just addicts, let them die, you know, let, let Darwin sort it out and that, that sort of thing. And, you know, I think I'm, I see it slowly changing, but you're never going to have something. You're never going to flip a switch on something like this. And now we're going to take a quick break to hear from the sponsor for Heroin Uncut, Carrier Clinic. We'll be right back. New Jersey 101.5's exclusive series Heroin Uncut is made possible in part by Carrier Clinic. Those suffering with mental illness or addiction need care. New Jersey's Carrier Clinic offers compassionate care, redefining behavioral health care with holistic approaches beyond medicine. When it's time to think about behavioral health care, think Carrier. Learn more at CarrierClinic.org. So long as let them die is a pervasive view, we don't stand a chance. And no one knows that better than our next guest, who has for years chronicled New Jersey's growing addiction to heroin. I'm here with Rohan Mahanti, a friend, a journalist, and actually a neighbor of mine who's worked the heroin opiate beat for a long time. We've actually collaborated on a few stories, and we learn together the hard way that the fairy tale ending is, is often elusive. Can you tell that story, please? TJ's story, and his family really desperately wanted to save him, a great family from South Jersey. So we went on a mission, and, you know, we actually had a treatment facility offer a full, full scholarship and detox and um, a halfway house afterwards if we found him and he was willing to go. And willing to go is the big, the big thing there. So we spent 12 hours in the cold looking for him. Um, starting to get dark, but we were optimistic in the beginning. It, 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 was, it was such a roller coaster of emotions that day. Uh, optimism into kind of despair. When it started getting dark, we didn't think we were going to find him. Um, and then by, ha- by accident, we made a wrong turn, and there he was, panhandling, right on the corner of 7th Street and Vine. He got in the car. It was cold, which was good, because he was cold. And he said, do you want something to eat? Had an intervention. And at the end of the day, the last thing I saw was TJ walking into his detox facility. It was the most fulfilling day I've ever had in my life, and I'll never forget it. It, it felt like an outer body experience, and it was too good to be true because these stories, they don't end like that. You know, we had a little win, and then six days later, I get a call from his sister, and uh, 
he'd walked out of rehab. Full ride, everything going for him. But that taught me more about addiction than anything. I didn't think he was going to come with us. Um, so the idea that, you know, we spent all day looking and it was so cold and we found him so dramatically at the end and we got him into rehab. It, it really was a fairy tale ending if it would have ended there, but it didn't end there. And I, I, I guess you were telling about the part that you've learned. I want you to like, like you, you learned something when, when he dropped out of rehab. I learned everything when he dropped out of rehab. You could go 99%, but that person that's addicted that wants to get clean wants. That's the operative word. They have to want it themselves. Every single intangible worked out in TJ's favor when we got him into detox. You know, we had the supportive family. We had the rehab and recovery and detox were all paid for. And it still, and it still didn't work out. Why, why, do, you think that, why do you think it didn't work? When we found him, he had no money and he wasn't, he wasn't high. He had just gotten out of jail uh, for three days, and we found him at that magic hour where, where we needed to find him, and we found him. I think it's the owning it part. It's the addict has to own it and want it for themselves. It, it, there's so much pressure, right? So like this moving puzzle around him, you know, he felt like, okay, I'm just floating here. And while he was there at rehab, he talked to me in detail. I asked him, will, will you talk to me? And he said, yeah, definitely. We sat down for an hour and a half after he had left rehab, after all of this stuff. And that, that conversation was mind-blowing to me. He sat there and he described addiction and his addiction to the point where if you understand something so well, you got to be able to beat it. That's what taught me how strong opiate and heroin addiction is. Um, because he understands it. He understands what he needed to do. He told me, I'm going to be ready when I'm ready and it's going to be soon, but it has to be me. And that was it. He, he didn't say, I'm going to stop. He didn't say anything. That was his life. He got whisked away and he went back to it. And, uh, man, you know, to talk about deflating an amazing story, but that tells the real story. And, and, and none of these things are happy endings. Um, you know, you have to, it's a constant battle for some people, but I think we needed that high to understand the low too, you know, of the story. And and you know, TJ and his family, his family's devastated. You know, when he walked out, uh, you know, the treatment facility. People don't understand, but that's what I try to say. There's no science to recovery. I think everybody has to do it on their own terms. So you have to have the person own it and, and understand that they want to be better and they have to want to be better for themselves. See, that ownership bit is really important because the ownership of recovery is the only thing that can give you your power back. Like the powerlessness that he felt in the face of his addiction, when all of these other things lined up perfectly behind him like that, I, I, am getting goosebumps just thinking about it right now, that powerlessness that he must've felt. And also he wasn't ready to be there. He was not ready to be there. That part of it hit me really hard because having that loving family, having those people worrying about you every day, that adds so much to it as well. That pressure keeps people alienated. I'm I'm really happy that you said that. Um, and I feel really emotional right now, actually, just recalling all this stuff. Um, I remember when my mom would say, well, why did you, why don't you call? And I was, I was embarrassed and I was ashamed. And I would always tell her I wanted to wait until like I had gotten my together. I wanted to wait until I was a little bit more squared away to reach out. And, and I mean, I was 
selling my ass for crack. I wasn't, <laughs> there was no way to get squared away in that condition. Now, I can't make a comment like that with no context, but the truth is many users at a certain point in their addiction, they turn to sex work to pay for their drugs. When I look at how this all intersects and I advocate for things like needle exchange programs to reduce HIV transmission rates among drug users, maybe you can't empathize with a sex worker, or maybe you can't sympathize with someone, usually a man, who pays someone for sex. But surely you can empathize with that man's wife, who in this case also benefits from needle exchange. Honestly, if your husband is paying drug addicts for sex, you've got enough problems without him bringing home a bunch of cooties. Now comes the hard part of confronting our own judgments about heroin and about addiction. This is, what, episode eight? And I've learned a lot already, notably that we're just not there yet, which makes the transition to solutions a little bit awkward. But we're going to go there anyway. Uh, yeah, I actually do have a couple ideas how we can deal better. From what I've seen is the the month model, it just it's it doesn't work. It hasn't worked. What does a month model mean? How many successful one month, 45 day stays have there been, you know, like like that? Why can't some, I guess the cost, the six month cost, you're still paying that anyway. I don't hear anybody bragging about the results of the 28-day model for heroin use. At first, we're like, okay, Narcan, we won. And then we're like, we're not even close. And they're like, we got him into rehab, we won. So like, I think, you know, the actual success story would be when somebody has been, you know, off of heroin for a year or so. So would you agree that for that it's a better investment to send somebody away for six months and really rehabilitate them and give them the tools that they need to be? Because like, we can't have people coming out of rehab like with diminished prospects. We need for them to be made whole because when they're not made whole, like we all pay for it. Wow. Exactly. You come out not fully recovered, like, and go back and re and relapse and go back again. You need to be a productive member of society. You need to be able to learn. And there needs to be more one-on-one -on -one therapy, how to live your life and get your life back when you get, you know, when you get out. Six months, I, I would, I'm saying six months because it's 28 days. I think a year is, is what it should yeah. be. We then pivoted to my very favorite topic prevention because if i've said it once i'll say it a thousand times one ounce of prevention is worth a hundred trips to rehab yeah we're attacking the symptoms and not the cause right so we're, we're doing this and it's so interesting because new jersey and government in general is usually reactionary because no one's going to just toss money out unless it's needed that's why our roads go to hell and then we fix them that's why our bridges break and then we fix them we don't prevent these damages um i think federal money and state money, they need to get in a preventative kind of way and, and start on the front end a little bit. Education when the kids are younger in school, a, a lot more, not not just giving Narcan to the nurses because sure. that means, hey, Johnny, you can overdose in eighth grade, but you have a chance to live through it, you know? And I'm not saying it makes it okay. I'm saying you have to think about it from the kid's point of view and having some of these addicts come in and making it a... You know, there's so many parents out there, like in towns, in uh, you know, with richer towns and higher income neighborhoods, that they don't want an addict coming in and giving a um, and giving a lecture to this school because that stigma. But you know, that's who these kids need to hear from. Like, let's hear from some doctor who's probably written hundreds of prescriptions in his career, and we're gonna get in and we're gonna have this doctor who's written hundreds of prescriptions talk to children. Ninety percent of the stories that I've done origin stores the same injury 
into five milligram Percocets. Downfall. Higher doses, insurance runs out, get them on the streets, run out of money, turn to heroin. Which underscores why we should be throwing these hundreds of million dollars to the prevention event. Rohan Mohanty, thank you very much for your time. That's all for now. I'm Jay Lasseter. This has been Heroin Uncut, presented by NJ1015.com and sponsored by our friends at the Carrier Clinic. Please subscribe to the Heroin Uncut podcast at iTunes, Google Play, or at the NJ1015 app. Until next time, please let us know what you think. We're on Twitter and Facebook at Heroin Uncut, and I hope you'll head over there now and let us know what's on your mind. What is behavioral health care? Uh, help with their emotional and mental health. I've heard of it, but I don't know. Carrier Clinic thinks differently about behavioral health care, applying new scientific advances to treat mental illness and addiction, replacing routine care programs with alternative treatments and new measurable levels of compassionate care, leading to better patient outcomes. For the best in behavioral health care, think Carrier. For more information, visit carrierclinic.org.